Alrighty. So uh, the goal of tonight is to uh, obviously to get ourselves ready for uh, for Purim uh, tomorrow night. And uh, the highlight of Purim is always going to be the reading of the Megillah and uh, the uh, the story. And as much as everybody's familiar with the story, I'm not sure how much time people have spent sort of working out the exact timeline, how what span of time the, uh, the events uh, transpire over, as well as when very specific events within the story go ahead and, uh, and take place. And as you're going to, as we'll see tonight, hopefully, so there seems to be like a lot of gaps in time and a lot of uncertainties about when events uh, take place. So let's just go ahead and let's start off with just a very quick overview of the... Uh, of the uh, of the story, and then from there we'll uh, we'll move on and see more specifically. So right now, what we're going to do is we're going to go chapter by chapter. There's ten chapters in the in the Megillah, and each chapter is primarily focused on a certain scene uh, of the of the story. So chapter one, and I'm just going to scroll down. If you have a Megillah in front of you, that would be great. But the first chapter, as we know, so this has to do with uh, uh, Ahasuerus's two parties. First, he has a party for the entire kingdom, and then he has a second party at the, uh, a more narrow uh, uh, attendance uh, list, those people who are specifically from, uh, from, uh, from Shushan. Now, it's at this second party that Ahasuerus has this great idea, hey, why not go ahead and invite Vashti to, uh, to join us? She says, in, uh, as it says right over here, but the Queen Vashti refused to come. She says, Thanks, but no thanks. I'm not coming to your stupid party. And he gets uh, obviously very angry at, the, at that, doesn't know what to do, uh, turns to his advisors and say, hey, you guys are experts in the law over here. What exactly should be done at this time? And they say, listen, it'll be humiliating to go ahead and to allow this precedent to pass that Vashti could go ahead and she could be so disrespectful, so such a chutzpanyak is going to uh, have terrible consequences in terms of the moral fabric of the, uh, the perceived moral fabric of moral, obviously in context of uh, <laughs> but the moral fabric of the, uh, of the country. And the only thing that we could really do the way to handle this is to go ahead and execute her and they have her executed. End of scene one, chapter one. Chapter two begins where Ahasuerus has calmed down and he decides, hey, I don't have a wife. So probably, uh, you know, sometime uh, later on, he realizes that he doesn't have a, have a wife. And his servants, they, the Nareha Melech, the king's servants, they have a great idea. And they say, hey, let's have a beauty pageant. And we'll go ahead and that will be the, uh, the way to figure out who the queen is going to be. And it says that this is a wonderful story. Not a wonderful story, a wonderful idea. And Ahasuerus is thrilled to pieces with the possibility of having a beauty pageant, uh, and uh, he uh, the the uh, the process gets uh, in motion. It's at this point we find out that there's such a person named Mordechai, and he has a a relative named Esther, and all of that. A little background of who they are, and then it says that she is drafted into this beauty pageant. She does not. Mordechai gives her clear instructions: don't tell anybody who you are. And then we have a description of the process of getting the women ready for the beauty pageant all of that, uh, that stuff, and through the chapter, so Esther ends up being chosen as, uh, as queen, and uh, the king goes out and makes a great party because he's trying to elicit from her her background because she still refuses to go ahead and tell, and uh, right, 
and, but she's chosen as queen. Now, at the end of that second chapter, we find out that there was a rebellion. There was a coup attempt against Ahasuerus. I wouldn't even say it's necessarily a coup, just a couple of uh, uh, people who were unhappy with the way Ahasuerus was running the kingdom, decided that they were going to go ahead and have him executed, big son and Seresh. Mordechai finds out. He informs Esther. Esther informs Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus has them, ki- has them killed. And the event is, uh, or the incident, is recorded in the history books. End of scene two, chapter uh, the, the second uh, second chapter. Yes, Mel. Do you want to say something? No. Okay. Third chapter begins. Haman is now formally introduced. He somehow is able to secure himself all sorts of all sorts of power. He expects everybody to bow down to him. Mordechai, as we know, refuses to bow down to him, and uh, Haman goes out of his mind with uh, with uh, it's not even jealousy, but out of his mind. Uh, with the, uh, the Mordechai's refusal to bow down to him. And it's not enough for Haman to go ahead and just kill the one person who refuses to bow down to him. He decides that there's a Jewish problem in the, uh, in the empire, and we got to go ahead and we got to take, uh, take care of the Jewish problem. And he goes ahead and he decides that he's going to have a lottery. He's going to choose a date upon which he's going to have the Jews executed. What's interesting is he does that before he's even consulted with Ahasuerus. He just decides on his own what the date is going to be, how the lottery is going to come out. And once he has a date on the calendar, it's as if he says, listen, it's already on the calendar. We got to take care of this. We can't, we can't undo it now. It's, it's already there. So it's at that point he goes to Ahasuerus and Ahasuerus does the act of taking off his signet ring, which effectively gives Haman all of the power in the world to do whatever he wants. And the, uh, a message, message is sent out uh, this was the sort of like the opposite of an amber alert, but uh, the message is sent out throughout the kingdom that there's going to be a day where the Jews are going to be uh, are going to be killed. The uh, and the city of Shushan, the, the parak ends Beir Shushan Navocha. That the city of Shushan was they translated as in consternation, but obviously they were unhappy about this uh, this uh, this decree. Chapter four begins. Mordechai is aware of what happens. He first demonstrates some mourning and some sadness and gives out a, a, a cry. And he now has to communicate with, uh, with Esther, saying that, listen, there's something which is terrible which is going on over here. And being that they can't communicate directly, this is pretexting. So they go ahead and they have this hasaf going back and forth between them, negotiating what Esther is going to do to try and save the people. Esther initially refuses. Then finally Mordechai says, listen, either you're with us or, or you're not. The salvation is going to come no matter what anyways. And either you're going to get credit for it or you'll just be a forgotten figure in the course of, uh, of Jewish history, of world history. And she says, fine, you got me. You trusted my arm enough. I'll go ahead and I will relent. And she says, Lech Kenosis Kol Yehudim, but we have to go ahead and we have to prepare. So go gather all the Jews. Everybody's got to fast for three days. And then I'm going to go in and I will, uh, I will take care of things. Okay. And Mordechai at this point listens to, uh, to Esther. Chapter five says, after the three, it was on the third day, I should say, that she decides that she is going to uh, go in to the palace unannounced. She's going to go into the royal chamber unannounced. Uh, with the risk that he may not take favorably to the fact that she is popping in un, uh, uninvited. But fortunately for her, so he accepts her willingly, stretches out the scepter, which means that she's accepting she's not going to be killed. He says, what can I possibly do for you, my dear? She says, I'd like to invite you and Haman to a party. And he is just thrilled to pieces that this means that finally 
uh, uh, Esther actually likes him. <laughs> Until this time, she he wasn't sure that she, that she liked him. But now that she's going out of her way to invite him to her party, it must be that he likes her. And he rushes to go ahead and get Haman, bring him to the party. They go ahead and they drink their uh, their bourbon or their scotch or their arak, whatever they would drink uh, back then. And he says it again at the party, what can I do for you? She says, I don't need anything, uh, but maybe come to my party tomorrow. So Haman walks out of that party thrilled to pieces because he's so honored that he's invited to this pri- private party between uh, Esther and Achashverosh. And however, when he sees Mordechai once again, the thorn in his side, refusing to bow down, so he becomes consumed again with anger and doesn't have the patience anymore to wait to execute Mordechai together with the rest of the Jews. Talks all of he brags about his family to his uh, to, brags about his family to his family, and they decide they advise him. Listen, the best thing to do is just knock off Mordechai right away. You have the power anyways because you have the signet ring. So just go ahead and prepare a gallow, and you'll you'll uh, you'll execute Mordechai in the morning. And then by the time you go to the party tomorrow, so Mordechai will be no longer be a thorn in your side, and all will be good. And and Haman is thrilled by the idea, prepares the gallow. He's all ready to go ahead and carry out the, uh, the execution of, of Mordechai. That night, chapter 6 begins, that night, Hashverosh uh, can't sleep, uh, and he goes out and they, uh, he finds out, he wants some, some, uh, somebody to read him a story, books on tape, this is the original books on tape. So they go ahead and they read him the, uh, the history of Mordechai and Big Son and Sarah, how Mordechai saved him. And Achashverosh, as Achashverosh is thinking about how he could go ahead and he could reward Mordechai for this, Haman happens to pop in in the middle of the night. Haman is so impatient to get Mordechai uh, executed that he pops in in the middle of the night, or maybe early in the morning. And uh, uh, Achashverosh asks Haman for advice. What exactly should be done to a person who the king wants to honor? The megalomaniac that he was, Haman says, obviously he's talking about me. So he went ahead and gave an elaborate description about all the best way to, uh, to honor such a, uh, such a great person. Achashverosh says, great idea. Do that to Mordechai. Nothing could have bothered Haman more than, more than that. So rather than securing permission to have Mordechai executed, he instead has to go ahead and take Haman out and parade him through town as this royal uh, uh, great person. And he does so. And uh, after the parade, Mordechai goes back to his place of mourning, his sackcloth and whatnot. Haman tells his family about uh, what happened. And they said, Oy vey, look at what's, what's going on. And as they are, and they, they said to him, listen, we, we have to tell you that uh, in the event that this Mordechai fella is from one of the, is one of the Jews, I think it's bad, that spells bad, that's a bad recipe for you. I don't think that's going to work out well for you. And as they are telling him that they don't think this is going to work out well, so then the messengers come in and say to Hama, listen, it's time for Esther's party. Let's, uh, let's, let's yeah. get cracking. So at that point, uh, that the ends the sixth chapter, and the seventh chapter begins at the second party. So the second party, once again, they start the drinking and whatnot. And Achashverosh says, my dear Esther, what can I do for you? She says, well, the truth is that there are people who are out to exterminate me and my people. Remember, Achashverosh doesn't know who her people are yet. But he says, there are people who are out to go ahead and have us executed. And uh, are you going to tolerate this, my dear husband, Achashverosh? And Achashverosh playing dumb, or maybe actually was dumb, it's unclear from Chazal, which how they perceive him. But the Achashverosh says, 
the famous line, Who is this fellow who's going to go ahead and have my queen's people execute, exterminated, including my queen? Esther goes ahead in fingers, points to Haman and says, Haman says this fellow, and Ahasuerus is beside himself in fury once again. There's a, a, a recurring theme for him. So he gets furious and decides he needs to go ahead and do some breathing exercises, and he's going to go meditate in the garden before he makes any hasty uh, decisions. He'll make a hasty decision, but he's going to go ahead and get some fresh air and meditate for a little bit and do some breathing beforehand. When he returns in, he sees Haman had, uh, had climbed onto uh, Esther's bed to plead for his life. As, more, as, Esh, as Ahasuerus walks in and sees Haman climbing onto her bed, he obviously assumes the worst, uses that phrase, are you going to go ahead and try and steal the queen from me in my own palace? And Harvona, the ultimate uh, fair weather fan, says, hey, you know what? Haman just prepared a gallow. I think it's free right now. You could go ahead and you could, uh, you could hang Haman on that. And Ahasuerus says once again, great idea. They hang Haman. And it says, the, the chapter ends, and at that point, the anger of the king now subsides. The eighth chapter now tells us all about this transition from the Haman being the powerful one to Mordechai and Esther being the, uh, the powerful one. And that goes to the, uh, the, fir- the, the first part of the chapter. And then um, uh, uh, Esther goes ahead and she pleads and she says, listen, there was already a decree which was signed for the Jews to be exterminated. Could you go ahead and rescind that decree? Ahasuerus says, I'm so sorry, but I can't do that. That's beyond my power. Once a decree has been issued, it's going to be, it, it's a, it, you can't uh, reverse it. But what I can do is I can issue another decree which says that the Jews have the right to go ahead and defend themselves. How, how does that sound? And she says, I'll take what I could get. And they go ahead and they do so. Mordechai goes out wearing royal garments. Now, this seemingly is the second time that day that he goes out wearing those royal garments because he already went out that, that day. The Jews are all thrilled to pieces. The ninth chapter deals with what happens on that fateful day on in the 12th month, the month of Adar, on the 13th day of the month, which had been the day that Haman had, the, that came out in Haman's lottery, upon which to kill the Jewish people. And it tells the story of, the, not in detail, but it says that they went ahead and they, uh, the Jews defended themselves. This is where we, uh, the ten sons of Haman are killed. Lots of people die. The Jews defend themselves successfully. In Shushan, they have to go ahead and they have to do battle for an additional day. And therefore, and, and Esther secures permission to save them for another day. And at the, the end of the chapter talks about the establishment of Purim as a day of, hol- a, a day of celebration. Most people celebrate it on the 14th. Those who are in Shushan celebrate it. Uh, sorry, those who, uh, yeah, those who are in Shushan, they go ahead and they celebrate on the 15th. And they record this message. And it's, uh, it's uh, sent out and everybody goes ahead and is thrilled with that. That is the ninth chapter. And the tenth chapter is sort of like the aftermath. Ahasuerus goes back. He reinstitutes some sort of tax. Everybody loves taxes, as we're now uh, spending $5 a, a gallon on gas. So this is something which resonates uh, with us. And then the whole story is, once again, it's written down into the, uh, into the history books of the kings of Madai and Paras that Mordechai was a great Jew. Okay. So without, going, without uh, examining the wording of the Megillah up until this point, what we have over here is we have seemingly a relatively seamless story. There's a party, Vashti is killed, 
Esther is is in, is is uh, placed into the throne. You have Haman rise to power, wants to kill the Jews. They have everything which uh, Mordechai is uh, and Esther arranging for the Jews to be uh, to be saved. And then the Jews are saved, and all of this transpires over the course of days, perhaps weeks, perhaps months. Now let's go back and let's see exactly how all of this uh, unfolds. And here, obviously, we could spend hours and hours going through this uh, step-by-step, but we're just going to try and focus very quickly and very briefly on the dates and the times that the Megillah itself identifies in order to be able to see the big picture, again, the GPS of the the landscape of the story, and maybe one lesson at the end as far as what the, uh, the landscape teaches us. Okay. So now, as we know, at the very beginning of the thing, it says, So here we are, the first chapter of the third Pasuk. So the story does not begin at the beginning of Ahasuerus' reign. The story actually begins in year three. So this is our anchor. This is our starting point. We're on the third year of the reign of of, uh, Ahasuerus, where he goes ahead and he has this party. We don't know when during the year it was, but he has a party. We know it was a 180-year party, 180-day party, sorry. And then after that, he has a second party. During the second party is when, when Vashti is killed. So the, the story begins uh, year three of Ahasuerus' reign, and that's the, uh, the next thing that, the, that, that you need to know. Now, we know that uh, the chapter two begins, Achar Hadvarim Ha'ela. So after this, it doesn't tell us what this is necessarily, but after this, after Ahasuerus sort of calms down, they translate over here as he became appeased. So then he decides, he realizes that he doesn't have a wife and he needs a new queen. What the, you know, it's, it's embarrassing that here he is, he attends all these king conventions and he doesn't have a queen to sit together with him. And there's always an odd number of people at the table. I mean, but they're always seated by couples and he is the odd man out. He's the third wheel and can't tolerate that anymore. But this phrase, so the Medrash actually says, has a machlokas uh, as far as the timing of this is concerned. So one opinion is, which would be the simple way of reading it, is that he has Vashti executed, and like the next morning he wakes up and says, Oy vay vay, I don't have a queen. So that would be one way. That's one opinion in the, uh, in the, in the Medrash. And, um, right. However, the Rabbanon, they go ahead, this seems to be the majority opinion in the Medrash, they say that the term Acher is, is actually muflog, that there was a long span of time in between Vashti's execution and when Ahasuerus wakes up and realizes he doesn't have a queen. And they say there was actually a two-year span of time. So there's potentially a two-year span of time between Vashti's execution and the beginning of chapter two. So we don't see it there because we read one right after the other. And the term Acher always means afterwards. But there is an opinion in the Medrash which says that it was actually a two-year period of time. And what's interesting is, is that, and this is a whole process of doing it. And we know that part of that process, that they spent a lot of time getting their hair did and doing their makeup in, the, in, in whatnot. But what's interesting, what's important is that towards the end of the chapter over there, it says that this passage over here, it says, that Esther was taken by Ahasuerus to be the queen, 
בחודש העשירי הוא חודש טבס, in the tenth month, which is called טבס, בשנה שבע למלכוסו. בשנה שבע למלכוסו, this is now year seven of the reign. So in terms of dates, which are identified explicitly, year three is the party, year seven is when she's finally chosen as queen. So regardless of whether or not the pageant lasted four years or lasted only two years, either way, between chapter one and the end of chapter two, four years have transpired. So that's something which is significant, which is important to be, uh, to, to be mindful of, that you have this long span of time which transpired. Actually, you know what I'm going to do? Let's see if I can. Is that, do you have a new thing on your, uh, on your screen there? No, okay. Hold on. Let me see if I could do a dual share. Um, okay, I'll just show you this. We'll have to. Oh, no, wrong one. Okay. Now you have something different on the screen? Okay. So here, we're not going to be able to see the, the whole Megillah, the Gantz Megillah. But here you see that these are some phrases which, which are going to be significant in terms of the, in terms of the uh, timeline. So here, so we see that it's now in the chapter two. So this is the seventh year of his reign, as we said. So four years transpire. Now, when we move along in the, in the story, so now we move on to the, to the third chapter. The third chapter is the rise of Haman. And, uh, and what, 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 what he's involved in. So here in, the, in, the, in that story, it says, Bachodesh HaRishon, Uchodesh Nisan, B'Shnash Shtemesrei L'Melch HaChash So here, between chapters two, when Esther is actually chosen as a queen, which is year seven of the reign, and now we find ourselves in chapter three of the Megillah, suddenly we're in the first month with the beginning of the 12th year of Achashverosh's reign. So again, there's five years which is missing over there in between the end of chapter two and the beginning of chapter three. And it's in the month of Nisan, on the, as we're going to see, on the 13th day of the month of Nisan of Achashverosh's reign, that is when Haman goes out and that's when he throws the lottery. So it was on that calendar day that he decided he needs to go ahead and kill the Jews. So somehow between year seven and year 12, so Haman rises to power, gets furious at Ahasuerus and uh, at Mordechai, and decides he needs to kill him. And it says that in the, the it says that the, the the lottery which he cast, the casting of lots, it came out to Adar. So it came out to be eleven months later. So he's in the month of Nisan. So you're going to make a full cycle around the calendar from Nisan all the way to Adar, so they have a long time to go ahead and plan the extermination of the, uh, of the Jews, but that's what, the, that's what came out. Now, there's an interesting thing in that when he originally cast the lot, it doesn't say that it felt what day of the month of Adar the Jews were, were supposed to be exterminated. It just says, initially it just says that it was going to be in the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. Later on, it says, um, that now it says that the messengers, so later on, um, I want to show you two things side by side. Let's see if that, this works. Do you now have two things on your screen? No? No such luck. Okay. 
but there was a way to do it. Okay, so when it says that the message, when when it says in the uh, in in the chapter that more that they sent out messages to let everybody know that the Jews are going to be exterminated. So over there, the pasuk actually says explicitly that um, three twelve. It says yom bo. So that's when the the scribes are called in messages. Uh, messages are, are 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 drafted, and they're sent out to be vinishlach. Uh, Sorry, says the next pasuk. So that happened right away. That they're going to uh, that uh, the uh, uh, Haman didn't wait at all to uh, to uh, you know spend time uh, pr- uh, uh, advertising. As soon as the lottery came out, so he went ahead and sent messages right away, immediately to uh, to inform everybody that. 12 months from now or 11 months from now so is going to be the day that they're going to exterminate the uh, the the uh, the Jewish people so that's what happens through chapter uh, chapter uh, 3 now that was so now keep track so this is so the message comes out on the 13th of Nisan yeah so now it says in the next chapter so chapter uh that happened in chapter 3 so now in chapter 4 so we find out that Mor- Mordechai, the chapter four begins. Mordechai yadas kol asher naasa, Mordechai is begadav. So Mordechai knows uh, knows what happened, and he tears his clothing. So there's actually a machlokas about this, whether or not what day did this occur, and when did the three days of fasting? Because remember, in chapter four, Mordechai finds out. He has the negotiation back and forth between him and Esther. And Esther says, okay, I'll go in, but you have to make tell everybody to fast for three days. So what exactly were the three days of that, uh, that fast? And there's a fascinating machlokas about that as well. Just if I get my correct page. So there's a fascinating machlokas about that. So there are some Russian which say that it was on the very day that Haman sent out the message that's when the fasting began. So they fasted on the 13th of Nisan, the 14th of Nisan, and the 15th of Nisan. The Gemara says very clearly that they did not have a Pesach Seder that year because they were fasting. So 13, 14, 15 was right away that they went ahead and did so. And there's a whole d- discussion about that means that they didn't really fast on the first day because it started in the middle of the day, but we'll put all of that aside. And then there's another medrash which says that they didn't start fasting on day 13 of Nisan. They started fasting on day 14 of Nisan. So the three days of fasting were 14, 15, and 16. This actually makes a little bit more sense with some of the other chazals, because if you remember, the Gemara says that when Haman came to pick up Mordechai to take him to the parade, so Mordechai was teaching the kids. He was in school with the kids, and he was teaching them about the korban, the korban Omer the special korban which is brought on the 16th of Nisan. And Haman says, hey, what were you teaching the, the boys over there? He said, well, in the time of the Besamitash, there was a korban which we would bring on this day. And Haman says, oh, that korban which you guys were going to bring, that was docha that pushed me off, that now saved you from me. But that whole part, that whole conversation assumes that the day that Haman was, gonna, was going to bring them was on the 16th of Nisan. Which was which would have been day three of when Esther was uh, was uh, was fasting, but what that means also is is that if uh, if they were coming if Haman was coming to get Mordechai on day sixteen of Nisan, so remember that is the day of the second party, 
which means that the day of the first party was the 15th of Nisan. So Esther fasts on day one. On day two of the fast, which is the 15th of Nisan, she goes in and she invites uh, Ahasuerus to the party. You didn't think about it before, but apparently she was serving Pesach at that party. I don't know why they wanted to come to a second party. <laughs> they were serving Pesach. They must, must have been at fruitcake or, <laughs> or something like that. But they went ahead and they, they, uh, they were eating Pesach at their first party. So the night that Ahasuerus can't fall asleep is after Yantif, Motsoi Yantif, going into the first day Cholomoid. Now we understand probably why he didn't sleep because indigestion from all the matzah. So that they, they went ahead and they, uh, that, that, that he ate. But, and therefore, the, uh, uh, the, so uh, the, uh, the day of the second party is going to be the 16th of the month of, uh, of Nisan. Then there's another opinion, a third opinion, which says that the three days are actually 15, 16, and 17. Won't fit in with some of the other things, but the three days of fasting, when exactly they occurred, is something which there's a whole, there's a, as, as we mentioned, is a whole machlokis in the Medrash, what exactly those days were. Was it 13, 14, 15, 14, 15, 16, or 15, 16, and 17? So everybody agrees that Pesach was missed over there, but the question is, was that the first of the three, the three days, it was the end of the three days, or was the middle of the, uh, the, 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 uh, the three days? Okay, be that as it may. So now it says, now chapter five, we said, begins with Esther finally going in, formally going into Achashverosh. And the chapter begins, that's the the opening phrase of that uh, that chapter. So everybody assumes, when you don't pay attention, everybody assumes that what is Yom Shlishi? Yom Shlishi is the third day of the fast. So she had three fasts, three days of fasting under her belt. Once she had... Uh, secured through the prayers and through the uh, the fasting and whatever they, they were doing during those three days. So finally, she felt that there was enough merit that she could go into Ahash, she could go into Ahasuerus, and she's not going to be executed in the uh, in the process for showing up unannounced. But the truth is, is that it's not clear that day three is day three from when they began fasting. Because as we said, if it turns out that she went in on the 15th of, if they started fasting on the 14th, 14, 15, 16, and she goes in on the 15th, it was actually only day two of fasting, it was not day three. So some before Shim say, some commentators say that Vahiba Yom HaShlishi is not the third day from the fast, it's the third day from Haman's decree. So Haman had made the decree back on the 13th. So now this is three days from there, so that may be 13, 14, 15. That may be when she's actually going in. So it's day three since Haman had, had issued the Xera, or it's day three from the Tzara, from when Mordechai became aware of what was going on. He gave out his shrai. He gave out the cry about what was going to happen. But day three may very well not be on day three of her fasting. It was on day two of her fasting, but it was another day. It's, it's going to be Cheshman from a, from a, from a different, uh, a different uh, uh, perspective. Now, but that's what happens when she goes in. And then, as we said, she says, she goes in on that day. Pashas, the simple thing is, we're going to go with the, the simple one, is that that was on Tesvav Nisan. So she goes in on that day. So at this point, time is moving very slowly in the story. Uh, but at this point, she says, I want you to come to a party today. So that was on that day that she shows up. She wants, she has her first party that day. That is in chapter five. And then it says that they came to the party. Ahasuerus says again to her, what can I do for you? I'll do whatever you want up to half the kingdom. She says, you know what? I want to make another party machar. 
So tomorrow, let's have another party. We have leftovers. What are you going to do with the Pesach leftovers? Can't save them for after Pesach. Nobody's going to eat them after Pesach. So I might as well hop around and uh, take care of the leftovers tomorrow. So it's so so he they agree that they're going to have a party now on Tes Zion Nisan. So remember, uh, Haman had issued the decree just three days ago, four days ago. It was on the 13th of Nisan that the decree was issued. It's now Tes Zion and um, and it was uh, uh, when uh, when um, Haman walks out of that party, the first party on Tesvav, that's when he meets with his family and advisors. They say, you know what? Go ahead and have Mordechai killed tomorrow. And that way in the morning, Uba Boker, in the morning, you'll tell the king about your plan to have Mordechai executed because why wait another year to have him executed? Just get it over with right away. That will be the morning of the 16th of Nisan of the 12th year of his reign. And the plan is, and he's thrilled by that. And he's going, you'll go to the party happy. And Haman says, that's a great idea. Let's go ahead and let's, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, start construction on the gallow right away. Chapter six begins, on that night. So this is the night between the 15th and the 16th of Nisan, in between party number one and party number two. So that night is the night that Ahasuerus can't, uh, can't sleep. And it was on that day, the 16th, the day of the second party, that Haman has to go ahead and lead Mordechai on this parade. So this is where the Venahafahu begins to unfold, where he went in to go ahead and to get permission to have Mordechai executed that morning. And instead, he walks out with an assignment to give honor and respect, the ultimate honor and the ultimate respect to Mordechai, instead of getting permission for him to be, uh, to be executed. So that's where the Vinahafahu begins to, uh, to take place. The chapter 7 begins now at, at the party. So this is Pashas, again, this is now the 16th of the year. We still haven't moved much in terms of our time frame. From chapter 3 through chapter 7 now, even though that's a bulk of what happens. So this is a span of 13, 14, 15, 6, and this is a span of four days. So the, the most of the story is taking place over the span of four days, even though we have nine years of time from chapter 1 to chapter 10, but most of it, chapter 3 to, through chapter 7, are all transpiring over the course of four days. So finally, at the beginning of chapter 7, this is where they show up at the second party now, Tess Zion uh, uh, Nisan. And this is where she says, this is the bad guy who's trying to exterminate me and my people. Achashverosh, playing dumb, or actually being dumb, goes ahead and says, who would do such a thing? And go, they go ahead, and Vayisluas Haman al it should say not al af sorry. It should say that she was uh, uh, killed, he was hung on the, the gallow, Asherchin the Mordechai. So that ends the activities of the day, the, the day of the 16th of, 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 of Nisan. Now, uh, chapter 7 ends, Mordech, uh, Haman is hung. Now, at the beginning of chapter 8, it says, Now, again, if you take that literally, what that means is, is that on the very same day that Haman is executed, that Haman is hung on the gallows, it was on that day that uh, 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 arranges a property transfer. He skips all of the uh, the difficulty, the the uh, the uh, uh, the um, uh, discovery as far as who's actually the owner of the property, and just gives everything which had belonged to uh, Haman, and he gives that over to Achashverosh. 
And some people... Mordechai. Uh, to, to Mordechai, sorry, to Mordechai. And he says that um, uh, there, there, there's actually machlokas whether or not Bayomahu means on that very same day, on the day that Haman was killed, that was the day that the property was transferred. That's what that would be the simple reading. But he says, but the some of Farshim say that Bayomahu refers to the day that Achashverosh finally calmed down. So once again, like he had by Vashti, he gets furious. He gets infuriated by what's going on, uncontrollable anger. He goes ahead and lashes out and has a Haman executed. And then sometime later that he goes ahead and he calms down. So that is when uh, whatever that day is, when he finally calms down, that's when he decides to go ahead and do the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the property transfer. Now, some people say it's an interesting thing. Um, There is a Pasuk later on in the Megillah, which says, um, this is also in chapter 8, where it says, This is Ahasuerus talking. He says, The house of Haman I gave to Esther, and I hung him on the tree. So if you take those two phrases as they appear, it sounds like the sequence of events was that the property transfer took place, and then Haman was, uh, then Haman was killed. Now, from our reading, where we are now, it sounds like the sequence was the opposite, that really what happened was he was hung, and after he's hung and he can't retain his property anyways, so rather than having it go through the Yerusha route, the inheritance route, so Ahasuerus made the executive decision to go ahead and just give all the property over to uh, to Mordechai. Some people say that actually what was done was very specifically to, uh, to torture Haman on the day of his death. In other words, Haman realized that he's going to be executed. So if you're going to be executed after all of his attempt to accumulate wealth and power and honor and all of that, so the one bit of consolation which Haman may have, even though he's going to be killed, is the fact that at least he's leaving something over significant for his children. Whatever number of children he had, whether it's 10 or whether it's 50, but at least he's going to leave over that power and that wealth over to his children so he could have somewhat of a consolation that he left something significant for them. And maybe they'll take over where he left off and they'll be able to carry out the plan to have the, uh, the Jews exterminated. He has no idea that the Jews are not going to be exterminated. So therefore, there are those who say that Ahasuerus understood perfectly well what he was doing. And he made the property transfer as the last thing that Haman saw while he was alive on this earth. To let Haman know you have no consolation in this whatsoever, you're going to see the transfer property. To make it more dramatic, he would actually sign on the property transfer papers to make it clear that everything is going over to, uh, to, to Mordechai. But he's going to see that. And that's why later on, the sequence is the property was transferred. And then Haman was hung on the eight, uh, was hung on the gallow, just to make it clear to Haman that you're going to have no consolation in your death whatsoever. You are dead, and there's going to be nothing significant that remains from you to pass on to the next generation, to pass on to your children, for anybody else to be able to uh, to carry out. So this phrase "Bayomahu," although Pashupshat would mean on the same day that he was killed, as he said, there's a machlokus about this whether it actually was the same day or whether it was sometime in the, in the future. Now, later on, as we move on through that chapter, so we said what the, what the remainder of the chapter is, is Esther pleads with uh, Ahasuerus to rescind Haman's decree to exterminate the Jews in the month of Adar, 
And Ahasuerus says, I can't do that. But what we could do is I could give you another decree which allows the Jews to defend themselves. So again, as we're, as we're listening to the Megillah being read, the assumption is, is that that also must be taking place on Tezayin Nisan. So Tezayin Nisan. So Ahasuerus can't sleep. He has, uh, he, uh, uh, Mordechai is brought out onto a parade. They have a party. At the party, Esther says, Haman is the person who's trying to execute us. There's a, an execution of Haman on that day. There's a transfer of property. Esther pleads for the Jews to be saved. Ahasuerus says, I can't do that, but I'll give you another decree, and we'll send out a decree that the Jews can defend themselves, as if all of that is taking place on Tezayin uh, Nisan. But the truth is, is that if you look, and this is what you have over here, in this line, which is highlighted over there, that this set, the decree which, the, which Ahasuerus was masking to, that he agreed to send out in order to save the Jewish people, so that was not sent out till Bachodesh Hashlishi, Huchodesh Sivan, Bishoshav Esrimbo. So somehow we went from Tezayin Nisan, Nisan, Er Sivan. So when from the 16th of, of Nisan, suddenly we find ourselves on the 23rd of the month of Sivan. So you're already past Shavuos. Pesach is already gone. Sefer Omer has already gone by. Shoshim HaGbalah, Shavuos has gone by. And you're another, you're already, everybody at this point is saying Tachnun again. It's been more than a week since, uh, since Shavuos. So you're two weeks after Shavuos, and it's at that point the message is being sent out for the Jews to be able to defend themselves. So again, we have this gap of time. There's a two-month gap of time. What exactly transpired over that, uh, o- o- over that period of time? So there are Mephorshim who say that... It's also it's an interesting thing which they uh, which they, uh, they, they 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 focus on, and um, that. So uh, remember that uh, one reason why one explanation why I give why there would be this passage of time this this gap of time which is missing is because the original decree was sent out on the thirteenth of Nisan. If they sent out the second decree that the Jews could defend themselves on the 16th of Nisan, then Ahasuerus looks like a fool. Because three days ago, he just sent out a, a, a decree saying the Jews could be exterminated. And the mere three days later, he's now saying, but the Jews could defend themselves. So that doesn't make any sense. It's like Congress or something like that. that he, he would look foolish to go ahead and to be issuing a decree to kill them. And then just a few days later, issuing a decree that says that they can defend themselves. So he inserted this gap of time, would not send out the second message until months later. So it wouldn't seem like he was such a wishy-washy person. He already seemed very wishy-washy. Chazal described him as wishy-washy. So to avoid that label, he inserted, he wouldn't send out that second message till two months later. And then it seemed a little bit more reasonable that, uh, you know, the lobbyists had gotten to him and they had convinced him to, uh, to, to change it. And uh, that would be one explanation. Another explanation could be that it took him that long to figure out a plan to counter the first one. Right. So there are some who say that as, as well. Uh, another thing which, which they say, which is a fascinating thing, is, I'll, I'll read you the language. It says, Yeshukasa, Shalohayasham maspik ratzim. They didn't have enough Uber drivers to send out the message already because what had happened, they had already sent out the drivers on the 13th of Nisan. So all the people who are capable of sending out messages to 127 counties, let's say. So that takes a lot of manpower to go ahead and send them out. And how many people do you still have left on staff who weren't out there? 
They weren't all like next door, right around the corner. You would imagine 107, this was considered by Chazal to be the totality of the known inhabited uh, part of the world. So it takes days and days and weeks to go ahead and get all these people out there. Remember to send messages of the new month from Yerushalayim to Galus, which was just a part of the kingdom. So that would take at least a month. It would take at least two weeks. So if you go ahead and you're spreading that out even further, all the way to India, so they have to go another two weeks. So you run out of messengers at a certain point. You don't have that kind of staff on there, like the IRS doesn't have enough people to look at returns. So everything is going to be uh, running uh, running behind. So they just they simply ran out of messengers, and they had to give it enough time for all the messengers were sent out with the original decree to return just to turn to send them back out again with the second decree. So they wanted to send it out right away. They just didn't have the manpower to go ahead and do so. And that is why there's that gap of time over there. Now, what's fascinating is, is once you realize that this is taking place, then you move on to later on in the chapter, where it says, So now, what day is this taking place on? What day were they all thrilled? Because this is not where they had successfully defended themselves. So is this going back to Tezai and Nisan? When you had the Venahafahu, when Haman is killed, he's given over the property. So what day exactly this is taking place is also something which is subject to, uh, to debate. Is this on the day that the letters were sent out? Is this taking place on the day that the uh, that uh, that that Haman was 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 executed? So there's a major debate amongst the Mephorshim when exactly this part of the story is taking place. And the next pasuk, which everybody knows, so that's the pasuk which I think most people, as you're singing that song on Purim, whatever tune you're going to use for La Yehudim, were I always imagine that that was after the battle. And after everything had calmed down and they had successfully defended themselves, it was at that point they had Or of Simcha Vasas of Vikar. But the truth is, is they didn't get to the battle yet to the next chapter. So somehow at this point, before the actual battle takes place, when they literally defended themselves, they, the Jews had already experienced this delight and the happiness and the joy and the honor and all of that. So that's taking place before the actual end of the story has transpired. So when you sing the song, you're not thinking about dead Amalekis, you're thinking about the right, somehow, the either the transfer of power from Haman to Mordechai, or the right that the Jews had secured from Ahasuerus to defend themselves, that was the cause of the Or of Simcha Vesasavikar, but it wasn't at the end of the story, because we didn't get to the end of the story, because we got the whole chapter, uh, the whole nine chapter, where they're actually going to go ahead and defend themselves. Then you have... Uh, and then in the ninth chapter, they actually defend themselves. And uh, we're going a little bit long, but the end of the ninth chapter talks about how they went ahead and they instituted the actual Yantif itself. And you have all those psukim at the end of the ninth chapter, which talk about when, when they went ahead and they did so. And you would get the impression again, as you're sitting in shul, listening to the Megillah being read, that this happened immediately after the war. So the war takes place on the uh, on the 13th or the 14th of Adar, if depending on whether you're in Shushan or you're outside of Shushan. And then immediately afterwards, you get the impression that right after the war, as everybody's resting from, uh, from, the, from the battle, so they, Mordechai and Esau went ahead and instituted, they, they wrote the Megillah, they wrote down the story, and they instituted that from now on, everybody's going to observe the, uh, the, the, Yantif, of, uh, the Yantif of Purim. 
So some of Farshim say that that's the case, but the Ramban, this is in the Ramban's commentary, not on Chumash, but his commentary on Shas, he says that there's actually four stages to the establishment of Purim. It didn't happen all at once. It happened in four distinct stages. And I'll just say briefly what, the, what, what they are. He says that in the year in which the miracle occurred, so everybody had a celebration. Outside of Shushan, it was on the 14th of Adar. In Shushan, it was on the 15th of Adar. And that was something which was done just in response. It was like a, a Hagomel party. It was a Sudas Hoda, that they had just gone ahead and they had just been saved, that the enemies wanted to kill them. They successfully defended themselves against their enemies. So they went ahead and they made a Suda just to, to celebrate the fact that they were not killed and they survived. That's step one. And you'll see that's going to be uh, Psukim Yud Zayin and Yud Ches. Actually, let me go ahead and pull that up for you. So you'll see how exactly that unfolds. You have this Faria page? Yes. Great. Okay, let me get you to. So here, what you have on the screen over here is Sukkim 17 and 18, Yud Zayin and Yud Ches. So the Ramban says, this is Shlav 1. This is step one of the celebration. And this was the immediate response after the Jews had defended themselves. And it just says that they made a party. Everybody made a party to celebrate the fact that they had survived the attack from, uh, from, uh, from their enemies. Then step number two is, in the years afterwards, so the unwalled cities, this is what you have in Pasuk 19 over here. So the unwalled cities went ahead and they decided on their own that they were going to make an annual celebration of their salvation. And this was without Mordechai's guidance. This is out without uh, Esther's guidance, just on their own. That's why it says, that this was instituted by the people who lived in unwalled cities. It wasn't guidance from the Anshe Knesset Agdola. It wasn't guidance from Sanhedrin. It wasn't even from Mordechai and Esther. They just decided on their own that they're going to go ahead and they're going to celebrate every year annually on the 14th of the month of Adar. And they said it's going to be a day of Simcha Mishta V'yomtov, and that's, that was their own institution without any guidance whatsoever. That's what you have over there. And the Ramban says that the walled city people at this point did not make an annual celebration. That's why the Pasuk only mentions the unwalled city people, because the walled city people, for whatever reason, they, were, uh, they, they weren't going to go ahead and do so. And um, he, the, the Ramban suggests that maybe because the people who were in the unwalled cities, they were at greater risk. Those who were in the walled cities, the wall provides them with a certain level of protection. They weren't as afraid of being exterminated because they had a good defense system by the walled city. But the unwalled city people, they felt much more vulnerable, and therefore they felt compelled to celebrate even more. Okay, be that as it may. Then the next sukkim is Chaf through Chaf Gimel. So here, now, this is where Mordechai starts instituting the celebration of Purim itself. And it says, after a period of time, and this is, it relates to a discussion in the Gemara, that they were hesitant in the story itself, whether or not they could write, they, they could uh, include this in Tanakh. There's a passage in Tanakh which says that there's going to be three references to Amalek, and they figured that that was already taken up by stories in the Torah, in the story by Shaul and Shmuel, like we read this uh, this past week, and they thought they had run out of opportunities to go ahead and 
to institutionalize it. And then somebody came up with a chap, whatever their chap was, that they could go ahead and do so. So is this point that Mordechai and his basin instituted the fact that they're now going to celebrate throughout the kingdom. So everybody's now going to, uh, to celebrate. And this is going to be, and this is now formalizing that in the unwalled, unwalled cities is going to be on the 14th, on the walled cities is going to be on the, uh, on, on the 15th. And they went ahead, and when, uh, when Mordechai went ahead and instituted formally, so he went ahead and he, he changed slightly the way the unwalled city people had, had, uh, had uh, decided to celebrate on their own. And that's why it says, It's going to be a day of feasting and happiness. And unwalled city people, when they instituted the, the, the observance, they didn't have matanos avionim. When Mordechai introduced observance of Purim, he institutionalized and formalized it. He was the first one to come along and add in this idea of matanos avionim. And then, then finally, at the very end of the chapter, it says, so now what happened, what the Ramban says is, is the one thing that they were still missing from their celebration was formally writing down the story and having everybody read it. And the reason why the people didn't want to do so is because they were afraid to go ahead and publicize this. Um, because maybe Ahasuerus will be offended, or maybe the neighbors will be offended. Somebody will be offended that the Jews are now writing down this story of their celebration of the defeat of their enemies. And therefore, they were afraid to go ahead and publicize it until, here you have at the beginning of Pasach Haftesov here, where Esther, goes ahead and, Esther and Mordechai go ahead and write down, wrote with all emphasis to confirm the second letter of Purim. So this is where the Megillah is now being institutionalized as part of Tanakh and as part of the, the observance of the, uh, of the day. And he went ahead to make sure that everybody understood what the intention was. That once Mordechai and Esther wrote it down, so they went ahead and then they sent the, the Gansa Megillah. To the, entire, uh, to the entire kingdom, that they should know that they're going to observe it, to formalize it and make it a permanent fixture in the, uh, in the Jewish calendar. And indeed, they went ahead and they, uh, they, they did so. So this is something which, again, as we're reading the story, we think of this taking place immediately after the battle, the defense that the Jews uh, um, uh, um, successfully performed against their enemies who were attacking them. But at least according to the Rambam, this is many years later, that they finally went ahead and all of the different pieces of how Purim is going to be observed, which days, who's going to celebrate, how they're going to celebrate, what they're going to read. This is something which the Ramban said also took, took place over years and years, rather something in the immediate aftermath of that, uh, of, of that uh, the defense. And then the, the 10th chapter is uh, you know, just a sort of a summary of all, uh, of all that happened. We don't have to uh, spend so much time on that, but this is the the uh, the storyline in the uh, how uh, we have you go from year three to year seven, very quickly. Year three, the party. Year seven, uh, Esther's taken as the as the as the uh, as the queen. Year twelve, when she when Haman finally rises to power and the decree is issued to exterminate the Jews, and then much of the as far as what's explicit, much of the story now takes place in year twelve between the month of Nisan and the month of Adar of year 12. And then the end of the story, meaning the formally adopting 
Purim and all that's involved in that, that takes place either in year 12 or according to the Rabban, it takes place over the course of years afterwards, not recounted explicitly in the Megillah itself when that was, but it takes place. And it's, it's important to keep track of this, uh, this, uh, the, the timeline which is taking place, because this is, uh, which we won't go through now, but it's going to ultimately be very instructive in terms of just appreciating the experience that Esther went through. Over Purim, think about that, of what, what, what Esther thought about between year seven of Ahasuerus's reign, when she was chosen as queen, and year 12. What is going through her mind over the course of those, uh, uh, over those, uh, those five years? And I think that there's a very important lesson in that, but I'll leave that up to you guys to, uh, to work on over Purim. And then maybe some other point, we'll do uh, some more GPS for, uh, for the Megillah, perhaps uh, next year. So that is what uh, I have. So everybody should have a Freilich and Purim, an easy fast, an easy, meaningful fast uh, to 